and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another amazing guest. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We literally want them to stop calling these things soft skills. Hopefully, you'll join us. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, communication, and we're going to talk today a lot about influence. When you talk about these skills as soft, it devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased. And I've been overwhelmed by the response the book continues to get. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it would mean the world to us if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Today's guest actually put out a blog post about the power of being a guest on a podcast and how she often will write reviews after going on podcasts. So hopefully, as a listener, you will do the same. It really does help us expand our reach. And thanks to all of you who have already done so. And let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. And speaking of intentional performers, Zoe Chance is absolutely that. She is today's guest on the podcast. In addition to that, she's a writer, a teacher, a researcher, a climate philanthropist obsessed with the topic of interpersonal influence. And you're going to find out right away that she's deeply curious. She flips the tables on our conversation from the get-go and starts asking me questions. So I think at her core, she's someone interested about learning. She's interested in teaching. And she earned her doctorate in behavioral science from Harvard. And she now teaches a class called Mastering Influence and Persuasion which is the most popular course at Yale School of Management. So, of course, she's been at Harvard. She's been at Yale. You might think, gosh, this is a really, really bright person. Maybe she's going to talk over me. Maybe she's going to use words that I don't understand. I'm telling you right now, you're going to love Zoe. She's down to earth. She's normal. She makes things simple. She's clear. She's vulnerable. She's willing to share herself and stories. She is just fantastic. This was one of my favorite conversations, and Zoe and I since have been communicating over email and social media. She is just an amazing human, and I really enjoyed my conversation with her. A little bit more about her. Her research has been published in top academic journals and covered in global media. She speaks internationally for Fortune 500 firms, and she even gave a popular TED Talk, which I highly recommend you check out, about how to make a behavior addictive. 
Her framework for behavior change is the foundation of Google's global food policy that helps over 100,000 people make healthier choices every single day. Before focusing on academic pursuits, she also managed a $200 million segment of the Barbie brand for Mattel. So look, the resume is there. And once again, I just want to emphasize, I think what made this conversation special is that Zoe opened herself up. She was willing to go into nooks and crannies and and places that perhaps she hadn't gone to before. So this is a great blend of research, of science and what she's discovered and what she teaches in her courses, but it's also about Zoe. And I know you're going to love her. So without further ado, here is Dr. Zoe Chance. Zoe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for writing your book. It's spectacular. Highly recommend people read it, get it, highlight it. I was even saying to you before we started recording, there's even an ending where you list all of the activities that people can do, which was, which was just really clean and, and simple and smart. And then I want to give a shout out to Todd Cashin and Ashley Merriman. Uh, both of them just speak so highly of you. I tried to get Ashley to give me some inside knowledge on, on you. Yeah. And she's like, no, nah, she knows pop- some dirt for sure. Yeah. She wasn't <laughs> Thank you, anything. Ashley, for not revealing. No. So maybe, maybe we'll have you both on the podcast one day and you can give dirt on each other. But um, <laughs> when I asked you, Hey, where would you like to start? You said, I love when these conversations are just highly curious for you. How have you seen curiosity play a role in influence? What I've noticed in conversations with people, so first of all, so much of our ability to influence and persuade other human beings is just a direct result of the level of connection that they feel with us. And that level of connection comes from how authentic we are with them in that moment. And curiosity is something that can only happen in the immediate present moment. And so when I was just talking with you, Brian, when you, you asked about what would you like to talk about? And you have a list of questions. And I was saying, if you pursue your curiosity, we'll have a deep, meaty, interesting conversation because I will be absolutely present with you. There's no chance that I can't be. So here's what I'm really curious about. When I do these podcasts, I, I think I was telling you, I've done probably 270 of them. The best stuff typically is before we hit record (laughs) and after we hit record. Yeah, I've had that experience on the other side with so many podcasts and radio conversations. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think, so just riffing, but my brand spanking new hypothesis is that when we know that this is being recorded, part of our attention is being funneled into self presentation concerns. So we're getting self-conscious rather than being able to really focus our attention on one another. That's much easier to do in the before and the after. What do you think? I think it's true. I think it's kind of like the research where if your cell phone's out, it's still going to grab your attention, even if it's just on the table. I think that little button when you hit record We are just trained. Even I said to you before we started recording, I said, hey, if you say something, we'll take it out. But I think we are taught from an early age to edit how we talk when there's a live mic. I'm not sure that's necessarily bad, but I almost want to have a podcast where it's like the stuff after (laughs) that, that it's like, when they say the shit we should have shown, it's, it's that. Oh my God. I love that idea to have a a podcast. What if it's a podcast that's called the shit we should have shown and it's your conversations and you ask your other podcaster friends for clips of their conversations. And it's this collective repository. You get consent from the guests, of course. No, what am I saying? Because it's before and after you hit record. So it's not even recorded at all. It's not just- And then we're talking about legal stuff, right? Like, do I record you 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 without your consent? (laughs) No, but you get the, um, yeah. You could maybe get that was such consent. a great idea and it was destroyed so quickly. <laughs> maybe, you get their, <laughs> maybe you get their consent and then you actually just hit the off button so they can't see it. I don't know. You're a researcher. Like, so so actually, you- actually, there are a lot of um, journalists. So I haven't had this experience with, with podcasters, but there are a lot of journalists who say, if you don't mind, I'm just going to hit record um, before we get started so that I don't 
forget to hit record later on. And so we have that initial piece before the on the record part of the conversation. I've done that before and just started conversations. They were like, okay, now we're on, we're live. Where I've been on podcasts. Like I had somebody have me on their podcast and they did that. And so when I got on, it was already recording and I was confused and I was filtering myself and I was thinking, is this actually, and he ended up using all of the material. And I said to him afterwards, I gave him feedback. I said, I didn't feel very comfortable because I didn't know when we were live and when we weren't. And I think like safety is so important if you're going to have a meaningful conversation. So I don't know if any of our listeners have ideas for how to do it because it is, it's remarkable. And hopefully today we can act as if the, the little button isn't, is insane record. You said something else that caught my attention though, around authenticity and the importance of feeling genuine and authentic. My whole career, when I do um, feedback forms and surveys on why my clients work with me, they're always like, I don't know, I just trust Brian and he's like a genuine dude. And when I do speaking, they never say I'm polished. They always say he could be more polished, but they always say, I felt like he was speaking to me. I felt like he was genuine. I have no idea what I'm doing. I really don't. Um, I'm not saying that to sound. I do. I know what you're doing. Yeah, what am I doing? You, and I can feel this from you already. You're able to really, truly, genuinely shift your attention to me away from yourself. You're not worrying about what I'm thinking about you. You're not worrying about what the listeners are thinking about you. You're focusing your attention completely on me. And I feel an intense connection and liking for you when I feel your attention. And I don't care if you're polished. We have, all of us have this ten tendency toward perfectionism, but that per being perfect doesn't make other people like us. Actually being imperfect and human makes other people like us. So we're striving for the wrong thing. How do people do that? How do they cultivate that? Because for me, I don't know any other way. So when people say that to me, I'm like, I, I can't teach it. Is there a way to teach that for people? Yes. And this is a big part of what I do when I teach charisma. When I ask people in open-ended surveys, what is the influence or persuasion skill that you would most like to learn? And spontaneously, the the thing that people most often come up with is charisma. So I had to learn about charisma in order to be able to teach about charisma. And the just to boil it down, the most important thing that I learned about charisma is that it's a combination of confidence and connection. And the way to do both of those at once is by focusing your attention on the other person. When you can do that, they feel like they're the only one in the room. When you think of highly charismatic individuals, like, I don't know who pops into your mind. Brian is a very charismatic person. Obama. Okay. So Obama, I don't know if you've gotten to meet him. I hope I, I get have. to meet him someday. Okay. Did he have that quality that for you, that I've heard people describe him as making you feel like the only one in the room? So it's crazy. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to tell this story, but I met him at a golf course and we were having dinner and he was playing on the golf course. So when he finished the 18th hole, everybody lined up with their kids. And I had, gosh, he might've been two years old at the time. And my, maybe even younger, probably one years old. And my son was a big, big baby, like a big baby. And so I'm holding my son and everyone's just like putting their babies out <laughs> and he's just going, you know, kissing babies and shaking hands. Literally. Yeah, literally. Although not really, because there were guys with machine guns and big guns behind that were telling us not to touch him. No kissing. Okay. No, no, no kissing. And he walks through. Now, you got to imagine the president of the United States, he's a lot of babies uh, throughout his throughout his time as president. He stops when I'm putting my son out there and he goes, this one looks like he's underfed. <laughs> I was like, did the president oh. just call my baby fat? And I wanted to turn to him and say, like, you look like you might need a cheeseburger, sir. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, he definitely made us feel special. And someone has a picture of him like talking to us. And I, I've since watched him a couple other times. And he does. He really I think if you're president of the United States, regardless of any of the president's and what you think of any of them, 
I think they all have that capacity to make someone yeah. feel like they're the only person in the room. They do. That's what I hear from anyone I know who's met any president. I think, like you said, the only uh, ex-president I've met has been Jimmy Carter. And he was in his 80s. And I mixed feelings about his presidency, but I've been a huge fan since he left the presidency. He's done amazing things with the Carter Foundation. So he's an absolute hero of mine. And I'm taking a picture with him and he puts his arm around my waist. And this is so like me too inappropriate and stuff. But he says, you've got a lovely figure, but in the kindest, in the kindest, I'm in my 80s and I'm being nice to her, not I'm making a pass at her kind of vibe. And literally, Brian, my vision clouded over and I was about to faint. I was just overcome by the intensity of his personal attention on me in that moment as we're taking this picture. So listeners, so we're talking about how can you yourself have that ability to make the other person feel special? And there are three really simple things that you can do to practice being someone who focuses your attention on the other person. The first very simplest one is to learn people's names and use people's names. It is not a coincidence that Bill Clinton, even back when he was a student at Yale, had a notebook in his, that he kept on him where he wrote down the names of people he met. And he did this because Napoleon had done it and he had aspirations, high aspirations even then. But he wrote, wrote down the names of people that he met because he cared to know them. And this is actually something that I do now too. I'm not great at remembering names, but I have a great desire to remember people's names and really be able to pay attention to them. If you do this, don't just be a dick and write down the names of the powerful people you meet. Write down the names of the custodians in your office and the baristas at your coffee shop and the parking attendants where you park your car so that you can have that practice having that experience where when someone hears you say their name, it activates a special part of their brain that says it's a self-referential part of their brain that says somebody's paying attention to me. And that's why we hear our name even when we're sleeping or even when we're in a party and it's loud. We hear somebody's name and we just look, we hear, sorry, our name and we look over. Interestingly, the name of our significant other does to a less intense degree, the same thing. That's just a random fact. So the first thing is names. The second thing that is almost as easy as that is asking more questions. So when you ask a question, instead of just sharing an idea, then you're engaging the other person's active attention. And um, the third thing is helpful because you don't want to be monitoring yourself when you're in conversation with someone else to see Am I focusing on myself? Am I being self-conscious? Because then by definition, you are, right? So you can't be monitoring your self-focus in a conversation, but you can do it over email. When you write a message, you can do an email audit and just notice, did you use a lot of first-person pronouns like I and me and mine? And if you did, Is there, do you have the desire and is there an opportunity to shift those either to you or we, or just talk about the thing or ask a question? We do a lot, we feel much more self-conscious in situations where we are lower status than the person that we're communicating with. And we do a lot less in situations where we're the high status in the high status role because we don't need to be so self-conscious. So I know that was a long diatribe, but I hope that is helpful. That's why you're here to give diatribes. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot that I want to go into, but one of the pieces is on Twitter. I like to be on Twitter and and share. I, I use Twitter as like a public journal. I don't know if that's smart or not, but I've noticed that I often will start my tweets by talking about you and, uh, you know, you should do da, 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 da. And I've started to change it to we, because you mentioned imperfection earlier. Like I'm trying to figure this all out just like my followers are. And I found that the tone changes 
when I go to you, it's very preachy. Whereas we, yeah. it's like, no, I'm, I'm with you on this. Um, can, can you give an yeah. example of like a kind of thing that you might tweet out like a, the, a statement? Yeah. I mean, I'm terrible at recall and figuring out what that is. Yeah. If you um, could, can you just make something up? Yeah. Like in order to have influence, you should use the other person's name. Mm-hmm. And instead of tweeting it that way, I would now, I often edit it and delete it and say, in order to have influence, we should use other people's names. I love shifting away from almost any time we're ever saying you should, because this is a phrase that just sparks immediate resistance from the other person's unconscious. And actually that is true even when they have solicited our advice. So even if they come to you and they're like, Brian, so you know about this, like, what would you say? What would you advise me about? And you say, well, you should. There's this unconscious like, oh, feeling of, we just don't want other people to be the boss of us. And we have this inner two-year-old that's like, you don't tell me what to do. And we can get past that, right? Like if I come and ask you for advice and you give it to me and you say, you should, I have this instantaneous like, and then I have to tell myself, and it would be very different if you said, um, hey, Zoe, have you ever thought about using fewer person pronouns? Did you know that it's a, that it's a clue that you're feeling self-conscious? So on Twitter, we can ask questions. Um, we can just attribute facts. So I might suggest, for example, um, brilliant new book by Yale professor Zoe Chance says that first person pronouns are a secret clue for self-consciousness and self-consciousness is anti-charisma. So you even and like taking, that, taking the we out, you yeah, even think it, it doesn't, because it's still about me. You're taking out the, the should. Mm, the should. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. It just like nobody wants to be told what to do. This is actually a struggle that I have in the sharing and promotion of my book. And I've tried very hard in my book not to do that. But the book is a practical book that's a crossover between business and self-help. And it was one of the biggest challenges to not be telling people what they should do. However, even though I'm not doing it in the book, or at least doing it as little as possible, just knowing what category this book is in, people have a little bit of resistance to it and they expect that this is gonna give them a lot of freaking work. Yeah, and I think it did the opposite. It made things cleaner and clearer, like you just did with me. Hey, instead of even going to should, how about you just share? Yeah. This is interesting. Yeah. Here, here's something that, but see, I even go to, I found interesting. Like I go into- That's not, that's not bad at all. And okay, that's fine. Yeah. So, and thank you, because it's not that we should never say I or never talk about ourselves. Absolutely, we should. And now I'm saying should, right? <laughs> and I'm going to be self-conscious every time I do that in this conversation. Um, when, when we're sharing authentically, here's something that I experienced. People can be drawn into that because there's um, a just immediate, present, personal vulnerability and sweetness in that, right? It's very different from saying something like, I was just wondering, I kind of thought um, I could be wrong, but that's a way that we use a lot of personal pronouns and that it's, it, they're called diminishers. And those are a clear sign that we're doing the self-conscious thing that has to do with status. Um, but the other thing is just, it's, it's not that you shouldn't <laughs> talk about yourself. That, that we shouldn't talk about ourselves, but that we could all do a lot less of it and be better liked. People like us more when we ask them questions and they like us even more when we ask them follow-up questions. There's been research at Harvard looking at this topic. And if for all the nerds on this call, now I'm going like way down the rabbit hole, but I find it really interesting that it's only the person on the receiving side. So the person who's being asked those questions 
that really likes that person extra much when they're asking follow-up questions. So actually now I'm realizing, sorry, this is not going to help your listeners, Brian, for you to ask me follow-up questions, but I'm going to really, really like you. Um, eavesdroppers don't do it. They don't care about the questions. Yeah. Let's stay there because it's really interesting. I've told this story, but I was in a car once with a bunch of people and there was one person there and I was grilling the person and basically like they were on my podcast, just asking questions about their journey and what they were doing. And the person sitting shotgun was like, can you stop asking him a million questions? Like, that's so funny. Yeah. And so I wonder what it's like to be the person, the third, the third wheel, so to speak. Like, what do you think is it about the other person? And we've all been to a dinner where, you know, one person just grilling the other person and then the other person in the relationships just not getting any attention. So it, as we're having this conversation, is there like a third wheel effect that happens where if they're not getting the attention, are they jealous? Are they envious? Are they feeling left out? Are they feeling excluded? Like, what do you think that's all about? This is something that should be studied. And I'm just going to call out my friend, Alison Woodbrooks at Harvard Business School. And you would love her, by the way. She's been doing a lot of research in this area. I don't think that she's ever looked at that, but Alison, that would be so cool. <laughs> and what you're saying about the third wheel um, and being not just like, not just that they're not liking you more, but maybe they're liking you less because they're not getting that attention. That seems likely. It seems very likely, right? There, there's also the possibility that with, especially with a stranger, that they can feel grilled. And especially, and you know, even with a close friend, if we end up going to someplace highly personal and vulnerable, then we really need you as the question asker to share some personal vulnerable stuff. And of course you do that, Brian. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's interesting because I listen to a lot of podcasts and there are people that will just ask questions. That's it. Yeah. And then you have people that will just share themselves and make it about them. And for me, what I've found is I want to do both. Like there's a time to ask a really poignant question, but there should be a conversation. So I'm going to bring myself into it as well. And for me, I find that that works, but there is a downside, which you were referencing earlier. Marketing often tells us to focus on a niche audience and to focus on, well, what's the purpose of that question and who's this for? I know a lot of your work has been in the marketing space and you started working with the Barbie doll and um, in, in a marketing sense. So as you're teaching me and helping me with this, this podcast has gone really broad. Uh, we go all over. We interview people in every walk of life. And I like that because I like it, but I don't think it's helped me necessarily build the world's most famous podcast. As you think about being authentic and genuine, while also maybe focusing on a niche or something that might resonate with a certain segment, how do you sort of see those scales and, and balancing the two? What I would imagine, Brian, is that you can offer something better and more successful by focusing on the uniqueness of the Brian podcast and framing that so that other people can understand what that is in contrast to other podcasts, rather than focusing on some niche market. And um, it's, it's not that it's not smart advice to grow to something medium-sized by focusing on a niche market, but it's actually advice that keeps you from growing to something huge. Mm. So, so can I just ask you, because we're talking about it, um, is there a way that you can imagine framing for yourself or for your listeners, what are the, like, what is some commonality or two or three things that you look for in guests that has, you were telling me that you're actually physically going and knocking on the door of some of the people I love and admire to get them on your podcast. Well, so I'm pretty relentless and I've learned that about myself, but I started this podcast. It was called Beyond the Surface and I come from the world of sports. So the idea was to go deep with people beyond the playing surface. 30 episodes in, I realized that all of these people were very intentional with how they were going about their lives. And so we changed the name to Intentional Performers to reflect that. So the first part is, are these people intentional and thoughtful with how they're navigating the world? And then the other two themes that I think I'm most interested in are mindset 
and how people set their mind and how they think about setting their mind. So I think your book gets into a lot of the gator, the gator mind and the judge mind and how these minds impact how we show up. And then I also love leadership and culture. So I love people that are thinking about how they can impact others, influence others in a positive way. So I think your book actually lives at that intersection. And you even said, yeah, I feel like this is somewhat in the business realm, but it's also in the self-help realm. Those places are places that I'm just fascinated with. My business is working with leaders and my business is working with performers. Um, and so those would be the, the spaces and places I like to dance. And I love learning from someone outside of the industry that I'm familiar with because I feel like we learn better when we have that range, so to speak, or that diversity, so to speak. So that's how I think about it. Um, I have a question for you going back. And I, I love to just do follow-up questions, but if there's something that I heard earlier that's sticking with me, I still want to bring that out. Of and it course. goes back to the, thank you. It goes back to the Jimmy Carter story. And I also met Jimmy Carter when I was a kid. We were at a ranch out west. And my dad said, guys, that's the president of the United States. He gave me the camera. And sure enough, I took a picture of my dad with Jimmy Carter. We get the film back. This is a while ago. And I took a picture of him from the waist down. Oh, my God. That's so funny. So nobody ever saw <laughs> Jimmy Carter's face and my dad's face. So to this day, my dad doesn't trust me to take pictures, oh even though we've got the instant feedback. But, Nobody saw the end of that story coming. No, but, but back, <laughs> it, it, it goes back to your story, which is about the waste and, and like the conversation that you were having with him. And it sounds like you gave him grace in that moment. And you were even flattered by him saying that. And yeah. you also referenced the Me Too movement and how inappropriate that would be in 2022 to yeah. make a comment like that for most of our presidents, which we don't need to do a whole diatribe on presidents and what's inappropriate and what's appropriate. But I'm curious, like the interpretation that you had, that that was just him and just the grace, kindness, just pure kindness. Yeah. How, how do we navigate that? Because we're at a point in society where it's very difficult to know what is kind and what is inappropriate and what is rude and what like I'm a male. Uh, I have pretty much said, hey, I am going to play this thing really, really safe when I'm having conversations with women. Um and, and really with anybody, I think we have to be really thoughtful in today's day and age and what we say to people, um, because there are consequences for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Any thoughts on that? Like, where did you give him grace? Because there are other parts of your book where you say, no, I'm going to stand up and shout when somebody is being inappropriate with me and I need to have that voice. How do That's you navigate right. that for yourself? When do you stand up and say, no, get your hands off me, you know, you sleazeball. And when is it like, you know what? he was just trying to be complimentary. How do you navigate that? This is such a really deep, juicy, complex question. And of course, there's not one answer, but I deeply appreciate you, Brian, for being a man and asking a question like this and wanting to understand. I, I, I obviously can't speak for all women and there's not a professional answer that I could give you. So I could only answer you as an individual woman and, um, and based on conversations that I've had with lots and lots of other women, but I, I j let's just understand. I'm not, um, I'm not speaking for them. Men can't know whether we would appreciate a compliment about our physical appearance or not whether we appreciate it depends very much on how we feel about you and whether we can respond authentically depends on how much we have uh, comfort and power in that situation. So if you have power over us, we could never possibly tell you that you made us uncomfortable. So I don't blame you, Brian, for wanting to be very careful. It is usually in a professional environment, a better idea not to just to say, let's take off the table talking with my female colleagues about what they look like, even though I would like to tell her she looks great today. She has a beautiful dress. You just don't know. 
and you might be, you, I'm talking obviously to all men, um, you really may not be calibrated about that individual woman's personal preference and how she feels about you, whether she wants you to do this. So it's easy to just, just let it go. Just let it be. That said, of course, most of the time you can say like, Hey, are those new shoes? Like, you know, yeah, they're great. Right. Um, like somebody, like one of your female colleagues gives a presentation and you can say like, you're glowing today and she's going to feel good probably. Right. But, um, the, the easiest thing is just to say, you cannot know. And it's very likely that she cannot help you know. It's helpful. Um, and I think it's like, there's so many other things that you can compliment somebody on Yeah, that there's a whole grab bag, like go, go grab, go grab something else. Um, and, and go grab something else. I love that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that didn't come out as that. No, it's as perfect. No, it's, oh, go, well, yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, go, go grab a different compliment. Um, yes. it's interesting yes. in your, in, in your background though, you also have a background in sales where you talk about being a door-to-door salesperson, you know, early in your life and having to deal with rejection. I did telemarketing early in my life and me too. I, like it is a great thing. Every teenage person should do telemarketing if they have it around when some kind of sales. I so agree. Every person should have to have a sales job at some point in their life. If I were president, that would be our national policy. <laughs> why? Why do you think that why? Because you and I have had to learn to face rejection and sales is, I believe the best training that we can get for facing rejection, living through it and building resilience. It gives us so much more tolerance for rejection in the future. So we can ask for big things. Like when you were saying about yourself that you're persistent and you'll keep knocking on doors and reaching out, what you're telling me is that people are saying no to you, but you're asking them again. And almost no one does that. So for most people, when we hear no, we never ask again. For the average salesperson, they'll go back three times after hearing no for a master level, highest uh, successfully, for the most successful salesperson, they go back seven or eight times after saying no. That's what sets a master salesperson apart from the rest of us. And I know like some listeners will be going like, oh my God, they're utter creeps. They're not at all. They've built a relationship, built a rapport. They couldn't possibly even have a conversation the seventh or eighth time unless that person liked them. Yeah. And you point out in the book, they often ask for permission. Hey, when can I get back in touch with you? And I've found for me, like that's a game changer for this podcast. People, the timing just might not work for them or they're saying no because they want to wait six months until their book comes out and that would be a better time for them or they're, they're on sabbatical. I mean, it could be anything. Um, we don't know why they're saying no, but it might not be because of you or because of the opportunity, but it's hard to not take those things personally. Um, there's, there's another, wait, before we move on though, can I hear why you think everyone should have a job in sales? Oh, I was actually thinking of combining what you were saying about everyone should have a job in sales and then the power of thinking of others. And the group that I think of that gets this, they don't get everything right, but they do get this, are Mormons. And I've worked with Mormons. And Mormons, you know, they send their best and brightest at a critical time in their lives where they are, you know, turning from teenagers to 20-year-olds on missions. And then they have to go knock on doors and they have to go try to sell people on the church of Latter-day Saints. And I've talked to people that are in those positions and they will tell you, I learned how to sell. Um, And I learned how to be a part of something bigger than myself. And I think you see a lot of Mormons have success in business. And I think it's in part because they have to sell. Um, I'm Jewish. I think there's an element of performance that goes on in our religion where you get bar bat mitzvah at a young age and you have to learn to get up and speak. Um, there's a reason why I think you see a lot of Jews in comedy or in acting or in theater. Um, I think it's woven into our being and our ability to have confidence in ourselves. 
And so I'm going to use those two groups as an example. And so for me, I, I wonder what it would look like to say to a 19 year old, you're going to go on a mission. It doesn't have to be for the Latter-day Saints, but you're going to go sell something that maybe it's, you know, Habitat for Humanity, and you're going to have to go find a way to raise money for building the house. And like, how can we combine a mission as a country to teach people to give back and be philanthropic with selling? I think those two are just so critical components to being a quality human being or being successful at whatever you want. So I don't know. Did I? That's amazing. I love it. And, and the, so first of all, just broadening out from selling, it doesn't have to be selling a product or service and receiving money for it. Absolutely. You would learn whatever benefits you learn from sales, from something like being a missionary and the missionaries are, it's a really interesting example because first of all, almost everyone says no to them. They, they have the highest rejection rates of anyone and they have to learn how to be hopeful and confident and open and really connecting with another person and to not take it personally at all if that other person says no. And what they're doing as well though, so from a church strategy perspective, one of the big things that's going on when those 18, 19 year olds go out and do their mission year is that they're selling themselves on the Mormon church. So they are coming back more devout than ever. So it's really genius. Yeah, they have to teach. So like teaching, I make all my clients teach me in our last session because then they're the, they, they've got, a, they've got everything they need. And um, we usually don't, we still need to grow, but it, once we can teach something, we can sort of be more of an expert in it. Um, we, we both been in sales. One of my first sales gigs was working at a, a condo building and my manager at the time said, compliment, um, hey, compliment their shoes, compliment their hair. I mean, this was a little while ago. So going back to our conversation earlier, but what do you find with compliments and influence? Do you find them to be helpful? Um, we were sort of talking about the grab bag earlier. Um, what, what have you noticed with, with uh, compliments? So the empirical research on flattery is what they call the research on compliments is that it works on you, even if you think it doesn't. Mm. And even if it is literally just a computer and you know that, we are persuaded by flattery. So this is stepping away a little bit from the Me Too creepiness, right? You could definitely be creepy. It's not that telling some woman she has a great figure is just gonna be so flattering and she will definitely love you. She may cringe. Um, but compliments generally are a very powerful form of influence. I find it very creepy when um, people in sales are using compliments as flattery and just seeming like they come across as fake, right? And what is fakeness? What is authenticity? Who can, who can tell who's the judge? If we're talking about influence, all that matters is the person on the other side. Do they feel that it's fake or real, but for yourself as a human being, whether it's a show or whether you really mean it also matters a lot. I had, Brian, I had a friend, uh, what well, was my mom's friend who gave me the best advice, best life advice ever my whole life. I was 13. She was married to a diplomat because you and I were talking about a grip around DC. And she said, Zoe, all you need to know about life is that every person you meet finds something that you like about them. It, and she had to go to parties, host parties, interact with a lot of people who are very difficult. And she said, it might be so hard to find something that all you can find is their earrings, but like their earrings. And what you do to try to find something that, to like about the other person is you ask them questions. And as you ask them questions, you will find something to like. And I've found this was life-changing. I think of like roommates when you've had roommates throughout your life, there's always something you don't like about them. No one's ever had a roommate. I'm married, happily married. There's stuff about my roommate that I, you know, I don't like. Uh, it's just the way it is, but I've never had a roommate where there wasn't something I appreciated about them. And um, yeah, I agree with you. I think 
I've challenged clients when they're going out to dinner with a couple that they, you know, maybe the wives like each other and they're not into the other spouse or partner. And I'll say, well, let's just see if you can find something. Same thing. Like, let's just be curious yeah. and, and listen and see what we can find. Um, one of my favorite parts, speaking of dinner, of your book was about Danny Meyer and how Danny Meyer changed how you teach. And even I've got a couple of speaking gigs next week, and I'm even leveraging this in real time to think about how I can adjust my delivery and the way I approach it. Can you talk about the power of a dinner party and being in customer service and how that altered how you thought about teaching at Yale? Yeah. Yeah. Danny Meyer is so cool. And he's the restaurateur behind fancy restaurants like um, 11 Madison Park and also one of the founders of Shake Shack. And he came to Yale School of Management to teach us about leadership and talk about his book called Setting the Table. And he told us, listen, all of you are in the hospitality business. So I'm sitting there as a professor thinking he's talking to all of the students going into industry and they're all in the hospitality business. And that's kind of interesting. And then I got to have dinner with Danny after the talk or lunch, I guess. And I, I realized I could ask myself the question, what would it look like if you were in the hospitality business when you're teaching instead of teaching the class? What if you were hosting the class? And that was when I acknowledged how much, even though my class was super popular, I got greens, I was going in from such a narcissistic ego perspective and trying to control everything. I was trying to be the star and all I could focus on was my own performance. I would shine on stage, but then backstage beforehand afterwards, I had this very rigid idea about what was and was not okay, community norms that would have to be enforced by TAs. I actually wanted to lock the doors of the classroom when I started teaching so that nobody would come in late and ruin the show. That's how controlling I was. And, and there were very rigid rules about grades and you could miss one class, but if you missed more than one, your grade goes down incrementally by each one you miss. And I realized like, wow, if I were a host and they were guests, uh, I'm not going to try to control things so much. I'm just going to try to invite them to a potentially wonderful experience. And it's about them. It's not about me. And I'm definitely going to welcome them. We play music before class starts. The TAs and I show up early. We smile, we greet people, make small talk as they enter. We, we welcome them hospitably. And I don't take attendance anymore. Not only do I not grade it, I don't even take attendance because you shouldn't be required to come to a party. You should just be invited. My standards for the students, my standards for the TAs, my standards for myself have lowered so much. I've lost this desire for perfectionism from any of us. Like if you're a guest at a party, you can spill the wine and it's fine. If you're the host of a party, you can burn the casserole. You can have dog hair on the couch. It's really okay. We're just human beings trying to serve and enjoy each other. And I have, Brian, every single day, 95% of the enrolled students will show up for my class. It's amazing. So you're highly adaptable. What do you do when you're preparing for that class? Is it loose like that or is it more rigid and tight? I prepare moments of interaction that I know that I want to have. So, and this is... Um, not specifically related to hosting. This is just related to influence and attention and the fact, the reality that when you're teaching or giving a talk, you need to re-engage attention. It's not just about engaging attention at the beginning, but people's attention span is not like a goldfish. It's not six seconds. It's about 10 minutes. It's maybe seven to 10 minutes. And so every seven to 10 minutes, you need to give them something that brings them back to the room with you. So this could be an interactive exercise. It could be switching from teaching science to telling a story. 
It could be a class discussion. It could be that I just show a funny video and they're laughing. But what I have definitely mapped out is what are the six or so specific places where I'm definitely going to engage attention. And that's something that I'll do even if it's a keynote talk and not just if it's a classroom workshop. And then uh, I'm, I'm somebody who makes way too many slides and I'm trying to shift away from that for the future because I don't wanna be one of those people. That's a very weird way to spend my time. It's not a good use of it. You mentioned in the beginning, you would say, all right, lock the doors. It, it, it's showtime. If you're not oh, yeah. here, if you're not here, <laughs> like spotlights on me and your background is in theater. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about Broadway and, you know, with all of your stuff, I'm kind of thinking of, all right, where do I overdose? Because like the name thing, I've had people use my name just over and over again. And I'm like, stop selling me. I, I you know, my yeah. name by now, stop using it. Right. And so I, I'm thinking about like, where, where do I maybe overdose? So you probably still want some of that theatric entertaining. Um, I know what I'm talking about persona or maybe not. You feel like if we think about Broadway and they've got a show and they're acting, I'll, I'll back up even one more step. I remember I was in sixth grade and we did like Midsummer Night Dream and I just went off script, totally off script. What? And, yeah, yeah. I mean, you improvise Shakespeare? Yeah, I mean, I'm just <laughs> improvising. I would just make we were doing it at a middle school with, or at an elementary school. We were in middle school doing it at Seven Locks Elementary School. You were and I got a lot of laughs. Like it worked. That's but amazing. I but I don't think my colleagues were that happy with me at the time. And so I would understand in a in a room where you're the teacher and you can decide it's it's your world. So we're gonna be a more fluid. But for other people where they're maybe on stage and they're in a team and they're relying on others, we do need to stick to the script. Um, it, or if we are working together and we're in a, you know, a board meeting, we, we do need to say, hey, this is our plan. So how do you sort of think about that capacity to adapt and let go? And, and when is it appropriate that we may need to stay on target here and 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 do stick to the slides, so to speak. How do you think about that balance? So in a meeting, generally, uh, you know, we definitely should have an agenda, but not a script, mm. right? So we have conversation topics, but if we already know what people are going to say, we definitely shouldn't have the meeting. We're definitely wasting everybody's time. And then also though, of course, there are situations where leaders will do best by throwing the agenda out the window when there's some moment of unexpected crisis or even unexpected opportunity, whether that's for an individual person or the organization or the nation, whatever that is. So managers can really turn employees off when they try to stick to the agenda on those days and they can win a lot of loyalty by just putting the agenda to the side and having a real human conversation before getting back to business. I was talking to a manager last week who now, since the pandemic started and he's running a virtual team, he opens every team meeting with the question, how are you really doing? And everyone on his team just goes around briefly and says how they're really doing. And he said, we're present and we're there and we're so engaged and real with each other. And that doesn't take more than five minutes at the beginning of the meeting. And I think it's a beautiful practice. I also love that really is in there because if you exactly. just say, how are you doing? I think when they, when you ask people, how are you doing? The most common answer is I'm fine or I'm okay. And it's the biggest lie that humans tell. Yeah. But really when you insert that in that, that's powerful. I like that. When you were talking about the script earlier, it got me thinking about, all right, influence hypnosis. Um, I've had clients come to me in the past and say, Brian, do you do hypnosis? And I go, no. And I don't, it's not because I don't think it doesn't work. I, I, I'm not trained in it. I'm, I'm not all that curious in it. Like, it's not that exciting to me to potentially hypnotize someone. I'll talk about visualization and how we can use visualization. So it's just never been something I've been overly interested in. 
I say that while also, I think, sharing with you a love for magic. Like, I think, you do? oh my gosh, I'm a, I, I think magic. I don't know why this didn't get sparked when I was a kid. I was probably too interested in sports that I just didn't go down the magic rabbit hole. But if I could have like one superpower, speaking of superpowers, like when you see a great magician, I get so mind blown by what is going on there. And I know it's illusions, but if you've ever been in the presence of a great illusionist, it it is, I, I can't even, it's, I can't even speak about it. It, it is unbelievable. So maybe let's talk about hypnosis and illusions and magic and because I think it all has to do with influence, um, yeah. but you're smiling. So yeah. What are your thoughts? Initially I was smiling because of how awesome it is that, that you get to be a person in the world that people come to and say, so can you hypnotize me? Do you do hypnosis, Brian? Like how that they would just expect that you're someone who has these powers is an incredible compliment. I don't hardly, have them, I don't but know. still hardly anyone gets that from anybody. And, um, and yeah, you, you know, I'm, I just have, I, I'm such a fan girl for mentalists, magicians, and people who understand influence so well that they are able to have us believe something that we know is not true. It's mind blowing. And so one thing that I just want to put out here is a plug for Darren Brown. Darren Brown is not famous in the United States. He is mega famous in the UK where he's from. And he is, however, among the, in the magician community in the United States, he is the most popular dude. So if you talk to a magician and say, who's your favorite, who's your favorite mentalist? I bet you money that they will say Darren Brown. He has, <laughs> watch any of his videos, my favorite is Apocalypse, which is only on YouTube. And my second favorite is The Push, which is on Netflix. And we watch that in our class when we do our lesson on defense against the dark arts. And we're watching that. And so anyone who's listening, it's so fun if you want to do this. I don't even, you don't even need to have the book, although I do lay out in the book nine red flags that are things that you can look for. But if you watch The Push, you will notice so many freaking influence techniques that Darren Brown is using in this whole setup where it's a long con. The person who stars in it has no idea that it's a show. Everyone else is in on it. And he is being persuaded to hopefully by the end of the show, push a stranger off a building to his death. Just go watch it, everybody. It's amazing. So you're right. I had never heard of Darren Brown. And when I was reading your book, I said, all right, I got to go see what this guy's about. And I started watching the apocalypse YouTube video. I'm like 20 minutes in. I couldn't get to all of it uh, for a lot of reasons, but I will finish it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I think it's crazy that people figure out how to manipulate people in, in that way. Um, it just speaks to what you talk about in the book and that we're all susceptible and, you know, I, I kind of think like humans think they're not as susceptible to things than they actually are, whether that's getting cancer or addiction or, or depression or being hypnotized. Like we tend to think like, oh, not me. Like it'll be the guy next to me. Um, one of the things I also wanted to riff on with you as we start to wind down is you mentioned your coach Mandy in the book. Um, but you don't really mention her other than like a, a quick little shout out. So given that my world is, is coaching humans and I love just helping people, can you talk about your relationship with Mandy and, and what that was like and why you started working with her? And yeah, just tell us about your coaching experience. Sure. And I, I, I believe anyone would benefit from having a coach. And I believe anyone who doesn't have a real boss needs to have a coach. So I approached Mandy when I had joined academia. I was still a doctoral student actually at the time. And um, so it was, it was a huge expense for me to hire a life slash personal coach. She's brilliant. Her name is Mandy Keen, by the way, but obviously on the show, you should be hiring Brian. Um, but, 
but I reached out to Mandy to help me get the things done to be a mentor like I was missing because I didn't have a boss. And also in my case, because I was a woman and in when you're a woman in business or business academia, we just have fewer role models to be looking up to. And, um, and I, I think I needed a cheerleader as well. And she's definitely played that role. I've been working with Mandy for over a decade and she is responsible for probably 30 to 40% of all of my success and happiness. And I am amazed by how she does this. And she's someone who, although I've hired her to tell me what to do, she never says you should do this thing through asking brilliant, incisive questions she leads me to those things myself. She will throw out some ideas sometimes, but she'll always say like, you know, like, I'm just going to put this out there, like, see how, see how it feels, see if this resonates with you, but what would you think of? And she'll make a suggestion, like, no, no, no. And, um, or like, yes. And she actually does a lot of guided visualizations with me that I haven't thought of as being hypnotic, but she will lead me through a guided visualization of meeting future Zoe. And I get to ask future Zoe questions and future Zoe gives me advice. And Brian, I have no idea why this works, but I get incredible advice from future Zoe that I can't think of or get from present Zoe. Why is that? Well, the research on distancing yourself, like Ethan Cross talks about this in the book Chatter and the power of speaking in the third person or when we have distance, it allows us to see more possibilities and, and more options. So that's a that's a theory on, on my end. Um, by the way, so Mandy is responsible 30 to 40% for Zoe. If I work with you, maybe you'll get 1%. So, um, <laughs> so call Mandy. <laughs> there, yeah, call, call Mandy and, and she'll be she'll be able to help you out because you're uh, so humble. Yeah, I don't get those, I don't get those results, uh, those returns. Um, so look, like I think one of the things that I, I wanted to make sure we got to before we closed was this word superpower. And um, why go there? You could have used a lot of words with influence. But why, why the word superpower next to the word influence? I have received feedback that more than one person hears that title and finds it cheesy. And I totally understand. And I didn't choose superpower as some kind of gimmicky marketing thing. I chose the word superpower because influence is a superpower. It, it literally absolutely is the superpower that all humans are gifted with and you've had since you were born to make almost anything that you want to happen happen if you happens by influencing other people it's all that we can do as a baby it's what has allowed our species to come together and thrive and do things collaboratively in groups and span the globe and your only hope for making your dreams come true is to become more influential and to become someone people want to say yes to. The magic of it is that through these practices, when you get there, ultimately you're approaching people with a great idea and they want to say yes before you've even told them what it is. So they're drawn to you. That's a perfect, I'm gonna use the word perfect, place for us to close. Uh, Zoe, this has been a blast. And what I love about it is, there's still a lot more in your book. And so we didn't even talk about the gator and the judge, which is, I think, a core principle of your book. So I encourage everyone to go read it and go uh, learn about the gator. The other thing that was amazing when, when Zoe talks about the gator, which she talks about gators and feeding gators, like one of the most mind-blowing facts I've ever read is that gators don't necessarily need to eat for three years and they're able to do I, that. I didn't know. Um, I definitely am not. Uh, in alignment with a gator on that front, but <laughs> like that's, that was remarkable, but I love how you think about system one and system two and putting it into more simpler t terms and maybe uh, people that are 
ridiculously brilliant have have put those terms before us. So thanks for sharing yourself, sharing your story. And I know you're on social media, you're on Twitter. Uh, where else do you play on social? Let people know where they can find you and obviously where they can find the book. Um, so your platform, go ahead, share. Yeah, thank you. So please come to zoechance.com where you can find all of this stuff, including my newsletter and connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter. Book is available anywhere that books are. And I just say, if you get the book and you like it, I will love you forever if you would post a review. Thank you so much. Posting reviews really does make a difference. So I will do so for you. Uh, oh, we'll thank go over you. to Amazon and we'll write a review. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. We mentioned Ethan Cross at the end here. He's been on. And then Zoe's friends, Todd Cashin and Ashley Merriman are also there. So you can listen to their amazing podcast. I just get to learn from these amazing, brilliant people, some of whom are professors at universities that would have never accepted me when I was applying to college, <laughs> including Yale. So uh, this has been a lot of fun, Zoe. Looking forward to next time you're in town visiting some family. Hopefully we can grab a coffee and and we can go into that grab bag and figure out a way to uh, get people to say what they want to say when they stop recording and, and create our own podcast. Yes, let's do it. Thanks, Zoe. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We just don't want other people to be the boss of us. And we have this inner two-year-old that's like, you don't tell me what to do. And we can get past that, right? Like if I come and ask you for advice and you give it to me and you say you should, I have this instantaneous like, and then I have to tell myself. And it would be very different if you said, um, hey, Zoe, have you ever thought about using fewer person pronouns? Did you know that it's a, that it's a clue that you're feeling self-conscious? <laughs>